Hey there, Oregon Surfriders. It's Friday, August 21st, 2020. And welcome to another edition of Plyben's Policy Podcast. Charlie Plyben, Oregon Policy Manager, coming at you today uh, on a rainy Friday afternoon from my uh, home office here in South Beach. Um, rainy and dreary. It's been kind of a nice week, uh, fast and furious week, uh, kind of unburying myself after being out of the office for uh, a couple of, uh, well, a few days. Uh, I had a lovely time up on the upper Umqua, did some fly fishing and some mountain biking and uh, had a great time as well up around Oak Ridge and did some mountain biking there. Uh, I don't know if you've, any folks have explored those areas, but terrestrially it's some of the um, some, some really nice territory of Oregon and a uh, great spot to camp and get away uh, for a few um, for a few days and so it was very nice to, to get get away but I'm back here on the coast in the swing of things and today I'm gonna give you guys a, a couple updates uh, one on Jordan Cove as I had promised in the last podcast and, and previously I would give some updates on that um, I'm also going to cover the Facebook uh, submarine cable, edge cable incident that's happening or happened and uh, kind of what's next with that. And then if I have time, I'm going to talk a little bit about plastic pollution policy, uh, what's the landscape for the next legislative session and some things that we've been working on well, with a small coalition of uh, policy wonkers uh, over the summer uh, to prepare for the next session. And I'm going to, if I don't have time for the full uh, policy update. I'm going to at least give you a little a science factoid update from Katie Day, our staff scientist at headquarters, who recorded a little something for me to include uh, in today's podcast. So I'm excited to give you guys that. It's uh, kind of a Debbie Downer uh, information about plastic and microplastics, um, but fascinating nonetheless. So let's start with the Jordan Cove liquefied natural gas energy project uh, that is uh, to uh, that is proposed to export out of Coos Bay. Uh, a project that we have lots of concerns over um, both environmental and from uh, recreational use and uh, cultural uses um, and public rights away private property you name it this project uh, has uh, crossed a lot of concerns for a lot of individuals groups um, organizations first nations tribes uh, lots of folks have big concerns with this one um, being ongoing effort for Surfrider Foundation for a number of years um, and it requires numerous permits and approvals from various government entities, you know, whether, whether, whether that's Coos County and North Bend and the local government, um, or that's federal agencies like FERC or the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. So you'll hear me tossing some acronyms around like DEQ, Environmental, Department of Environmental Quality, and FERC, uh, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, as I give you this update. Um, and um, I will have links though to sort of all of these different agency websites and sort of what these processes are about. Um, I'm going to stick, stick to the really high level stuff though because it's really boring and um, too detailed to get into all the detailed stuff. So I'm going to talk about three things um, to help you wrap your head around what we're tracking and working on the most for this project. Uh, I'm going to talk about the conditional use permit um, for Coos County and that's something that we're appealing. Uh, I'm gonna talk about the Coastal Zone Management Act Consistency Certification. So that is the certification 
um, of the federal government that it meets all of the state government's requirements. So that's the, 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 the push and the pull between the, the federal government and the state government. Um, and then lastly, we'll talk a little bit about the Clean Water Act 401 water quality certification. Um, similarly, that's another thing that says um, that requires that the federal government that regulates these types of projects comply with all of the um, state and, and, and local water quality regulations uh, in, in their certification and approval of that project. So uh, that's, that's what we're going to talk about uh, and I will try and make this as uncomplicated as possible. Um, but um, it is a little technical and jargony so forgive me I will provide links uh, underneath this uh, that explains these things in a little bit more layman's term if this gets too jargony for you. Um, so we'll start with the local level, which is most important to us because we are a grassroots organization and that's where this all starts with our Coos Bay chapter. Um, so on behalf of our Coos Bay chapter, uh, we are currently challenging the project in an administrative appeal to the Oregon Land Use Board of Appeals. And so that's called LUBA, you'll often hear that. Um, we've specifically challenged a Coos County conditional use permit for the terminal and some of the accessory structures. So we're represented by Crag Law Center and Surfrider filed our brief uh, back in early August in a blog post about the project and the administrative appeal um, is available on our website, which I'll also post underneath of this podcast um, in the, the notes. So our arguments really um, in, in opposing that um, proposed project really include that the, the security zone, which is the area around the LNG tankers entering and exiting the, the Coos Bay, would interfere with public trust activities. So that's fishing and kayaking and boating and surfing. Um, if you uh, know the area of Coos Bay, this is a really uh, important recreational zone and uh, also important for commercial and recreational fishermen going in and out of the bay. Um, can also provi provide for very important safety reasons for them um, uh, getting in and out at um, uh, important times, uh, such as when you know the seas are bad and you got a load of crab pots, um, you need to be getting in and out of the bay quickly. Uh, and security zones for these big LNG tankers can propose problems and complications for that. Um, so these are one of some of the big things that we're um, contesting. Um, recreational use in that area is very high. There's a number of areas where um, the security zone would interfere with uh, some current surfing activities, boating and, and kayaking activities. Um, so uh, the folks in the, the community know these areas well. I'm not going to get into a whole lot of detail about that, but that's kind of the um, key area at the local level where we're really challenging this. Um, there's a number of environmental reasons why this project is a terrible idea. They're very complicated and technical for me to get into. So I'm kind of trying to keep it at the high level of what we care about um, locally. Um, the, the removal fill, the, the, you know, the, the, the channelization, uh, all of those projects have really high impacts on the bay and the natural resources um, really for miles upstream. And so uh, there's other things that I could be chatting about here, but I'm not going to get too much into that. Um, so I'm going to jump now to sort of this state and federal poll um, between what's called the Coastal Zone Management Act Consistency Certification. So CZMA is a federal um, construct, it's a federal law that um, basically provides a framework for states to create plans for their coastal zone, which are sort of the laws and the frameworks of how they, they work in their coastal zone, um, and says that for big projects like energy projects that the federal government's going to permit, 
um, they essentially need to comply with these programs. And in return, there's sort of a give and take from the federal government. There's some money provided to the state for you know being consistent with certain federal standards and then at the state level you could actually be even more conservative in some of your environmental and your cons conservation um, um, than, uh, than at the federal level. Um, so it gives you also some control at the state level of these federal projects. So um, our coastal zone management is sort of uh, run by uh, the Oregon's Department of Land Conservation and Development. So our, that's our state agency that sort of uh, is in charge of our coastal zone management plan. And they objected to Jordan Cove's Energy Project's CZMA consistency certification um, back in February. So um, they pretty much said, hey, um, federal government, the, this project doesn't comply with our coastal zone management plan for a number of reasons. And I'm not going to get into the whole details on that, but it doesn't. Um, so um, that came from our state. And uh, later in the year, in March, we heard from Jordan Cove and appealing that, and they can appeal it. They can appeal to the federal government asking the Secretary of Commerce, the U.S. Secretary of Commerce, to sort of override the state. Um, so they've, they've essentially asked the Secretary of Commerce for that. Um, the state opposed the secretarial's override. Um, so there's this sort of back and forth going on. Um, there's really not a formal opportunity for third parties like us to submit comments or to intervene for energy projects like this. But we are um, following this with the coalition of partners and trying to keep an eye on the appeal. Um, obviously providing support where we can to the arguments of the state. Um, Jordan Cove filed its principal brief uh, I think in April, and um, th that was really largely referring to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission's environmental impact statement um, and early authorization order. So that came um, earlier in the year, that, that authorization. And so they're really just pulling from what the federal government said was okay about the project. Um, it looks like the Secretary of Commerce will probably not issue anything uh, until pretty late in the year. Um, I, I think that they have up to 260 or 70 some odd days after the, the notice of appeal to, to make a decision. So we don't expect that to come out um, anytime soon, probably late in the year, maybe in December um, or maybe even later um, before that comes out. Um, under our current administration, we kind of suspect that the secretary would grant um, an override. Um, if that sort of happens, um, I, I, I believe that there's some, some actions the state uh, can take and they can appeal that decision potentially. Um, I'm not exactly sure. Um, that's something that we'll have to, a bridge will have to cost. I know that we obviously don't have uh, any play in that. Um, the last thing I want to mention is the Clean Water Act um, 401 water quality certification. And the reason this is important is because this is the kind of stuff that the Trump administration right now is attacking and rolling back. Um, fortunately for this project, this certification is grandfathered in. But these sorts of certifications are another state's rights to say like, hey, our water quality standards are important and we want to uphold our water quality standards for these federal projects that you're permitting in our state. Um, and so under the Clean Water Act, um, both states and tribes have this right to review a project's uh, application um, and the project applicant must obtain that certification um, um, to, to move forward and so that they comply with all the water quality standards, limitations and restrictions of the state. So 
Um, uh, the Department of Environmental Quality has denied the project's Clean Water Act 401 water quality certification, and they did this without prejudice, meaning that Jordan Cove could reapply for this, couldn't reapply for the certification. And um, in their decision, DEQ essentially said, and I'll quote, DEQ does not have a reasonable assurance that the construction and authorization of the project will comply with applicable Oregon water quality standards. So um, Jordan Cove, as we expected, has asked the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to order that the state waive their right um, to require water quality certification and basically say, hey, we don't care about your water quality standards at the state level. You should waive that right. Um, similarly with uh, the secretary override for CCMA. So uh, we're really in this push and pull situation. The difference with the 401 water quality certification is that we actually do have a play there as well. So Surfrider along with other coalition partners have opposed this request from um, Jordan Cove um, to reject um, or waive the state's right around the request. And um, FERC's not yet ordered on that, but if they do, groups like ours would have 30 days to request a rehearing from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission on that decision. So that is a lot. I just gave you a lot of information about um, uh, the Jordan Cove Energy Project, maybe more than you wanted to know. Um, maybe it's a little high level um, in less detail than other folks want to know. Maybe it's too much detail. I don't know. Um, it's a hard project to track and explain, but I just wanted to give you some top level things uh, that are probably most important at the local level, the state level interfacing with the federal government, and then also with respect to the water quality um, certification standards, since these are some of the, the key pieces of this project as we move forward and we think about it. All right, so that took me a little bit longer than expected. Um, but uh, I know that folks have been asking for an update on Jordan Cove for some time, so I wanted to give that. Um, let's transition now to Edge Cable and Facebook, uh, which I think a lot of folks have heard about. Uh, our chapters have obviously approved some, some funding around some actions related to this project. Uh, I'm not going to get into a lot of details on some of the confidential things, uh, but I do want to talk about what has happened uh, and what did happen. Um, maybe why it happened uh, and, and where we're going as, as fast as I can here because I know we're pushing 14 minutes for this podcast. So, um, submarine cables, telecommunication cables have classically and traditionally come ashore in Oregon for years. Um, this particular project, Edge Cable Holdings Incorporated, is the subcontractor of Facebook, which makes this one kind of wildly popular and newsworthy. But this particular project, one of the things that was unique about this one is it didn't land in a commercial area. So these submarine cables, these telecommunication cables, they horizontally bore them underneath the seafloor, usually 20 to 30 feet beneath the seafloor, maybe even deeper than that, 60 feet sometimes. And they're going 60 or you know, feet beneath the seafloor and they bore right beneath the beach and they pop up on the other side of the beach. And so you, you, they might go underneath the beach, and you, other than the noise and the shaking and other things, you would never even know. The beach has, itself isn't even disturbed. Generally, it's a pretty common practice done. Um, and what made this project unique uh, is a few things. Um, uh, one, it landed in a residential area. So they were popping that pipe up um, where the telecommunication cable came up. They were, it was coming up in a, in a community called Tierra del Mar, which if, if you're familiar with Pacific City, is the area just north of Pacific City. 
So um, that telecommunication cable was coming in just north of the uh, Pacific City, not in an industrial zone, not in an area where other you know people don't live, but actually in a residential community, um, in an area where people have vacation homes and things like that. And so um, it became a target early on, whereas a lot of these telecommunication projects are not a target of objection. Uh, they actually come ashore, people don't know about them, and they provide the services that we all need and we love and we care about for internet. This particular project though, because of where it was landing, um, some people opposed it early on. So some people in Tierra del Mar community were like, hey, we don't want this, this, this lot next door to our you know, homes. Um, to be converted to a commercial lot where you're going to have, um, you know, some drilling operations span the course of a summer. Understandably, um, eventually that would all go away, but, um, you know, provided that there were no accidents happening or anything like that, um, you know, they weren't happy. It still went forward. Um, you know, we really didn't get involved in that. It didn't seem like a great idea to site it in a residential community, but whatever. These projects normally don't have a problem. Lo and behold, this project had a problem. Um, they were pushing up against some deadlines, as I understand, and uh, the project itself um, ran into a major accident where they broke off, broke, I think, the, the, the drilling tip, or they broke off and had to abandon um, about 6,500 gallons worth of drilling fluid that was contained inside of a, a drilling prism. Um, a little over a thousand feet of drilling pipe. I think some, somewhere around a half a million dollars worth of drilling equipment, a huge loss to the company. Um, and, you know, honestly, kind of a, a scary situation when you think about what are the actions of the state. So this kind of came to us in an email very randomly. The state kind of seemed like they weren't sure what to do yet. Um, what was a bit nefarious about the accident itself is the accident was reported and then it didn't get reported about the abandonment of all the equipment and stuff for two months. And so that all made everybody go, hmm, I'm a little bit curious about this. That sounds a little nefarious. And so I think the state was upset about that. We obviously were upset. We made it, we were quick to act on this. Um, I'm, I'm not going to get into the confidential stuff, but I will say that um, some of the actions that we've been able to take uh, and, and where we've gotten to, I think have helped with some enforcement actions out of the state, um, which I'm very pleased about. So um, one of the things that we really put out there early on was that the state needed to um, take enforcement. This was, this was a violation, this was a trespass. They needed to be taking actions on this. It didn't seem at first when we looked at the parks permit that there was gonna be any action taken. Um, the Department of State Lands, where there was some violation, um, actually did take action. And we were really pleased to see that happen on August 13th. Um, they, they, they went ahead and moved forward with an action um, and a notice of default. And I'll kind of explain, I'll, I'll read exactly to you what's been sent to the, 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 um, the developer. Um, so they basically have 30 days to reach an agreement on damages to be paid uh, in accordance to their easement. Um, they have to amend their current easement to the state's satisfaction so that it addresses any current and future risks and liabilities that may arise from the abandoned pipe, equipment, tools, and drilling, and drilling mud. Um, so this is the negotiation with the state piece. So you got to pay for what you did and you got to assure us and do a full evaluation um, that any liabilities will be covered in the future. 
Um, and um, you know, lastly, um, they have 180 days to either remove the abandoned pipe equipment, tools, and equipment, uh, drilling mud in consultation with the department and without causing damage to the environment in and around the easement area, or they can apply for and obtain an encroachment easement from the state, which includes an application and consideration fee. Um, so that's a little, that's kind of like, hey, I guess you can leave your trash on the bottom thing. Um, but that's probably in the case that it would be more damaging for them to remove it. Um, what's good about this is that the state's taken action quickly uh, and that they've uh, basically asked for replication on this. Um, what is alarming to me about this is that we didn't actually have all the policy tools in place in case Edge Cable went defunct on us. So, I looked at some policy and just remembered about some things that happened during the wave energy um, development period and about 10 years ago when a wave energy industry abandoned some equipment on the bottom um, or lost some abandoned equipment on the bottom, which they came back and recovered. Um, we had state lawmakers very quick to pass legislation, Senate Bill 606, that protected fishermen um, from abandoned equipment. Um, but primarily just fishermen, and it protected um, the state against losses in case that, that company went bankrupt or something like that. It basically says you have to provide financial assurance or bonding prior to development of projects. That's some policy that I want to see come out of this now for these types of projects. And not just for fishermen, I think for recreational users, um, such as the beaches and our parks. So if there's a long-term damage to the state, if there's a long-term damage to parks, um, parks should be able to get that money back. I don't think that we need to create a slush fund for like surfers or something out of this. What I do believe though, is that if these projects are gonna be potentially coming into conflict with the ocean shore, um, that we need to have the right types of policies in place, which we don't right now. So this is looking like a new campaign for us. We're really pleased to see the state take some action, um, but this is looking like a new campaign for us to be moving forward on here soon. Um, and uh, you'll be hearing more from us on, on this one. Um, but know right now that uh, as of August 13th, uh, those are the two major actions of the state, both the consultation and the mitigation for um, uh, the impact, uh, but then also the either reapplication or removal of the equipment itself. So we'll keep you up to date as things are moving along with that. Um, and uh, gosh, we're coming up on 22 minutes, so this is a long one. I'm going to skip uh, getting into the plastic pollution policy stuff. It's some kind of policy wonky uh, details and uh, don't want to get too crazy into that now, but I would actually like to give you a quick update from our staff scientist, Katie Day. As our chief scientist at headquarters, Katie tracks all kinds of research and science uh, informing our campaigns and policy work across the nation, uh, including plastic pollution. And I know that a lot of our chapters and including some of our activists are highly involved in the research uh, of microplastic pollution in the shellfish industry. Um, Katie was really uh, recently recorded some interesting factoids uh, uh, that's also on our uh, Beachopedia and Coastal Factoid website um, about microplastics. So I'm gonna have her share that with us right now. 
Hi, this is Katie Day, Surfrider Staff Scientist, here with your weekly factoid, courtesy of Beachpedia.org, Surfrider's Coastal Knowledge Resource. You ever wonder about the health impacts that the trillions of plastic particles in the ocean and the millions of tons of plastics entering the ocean each year could be having on us and marine life? Not only does plastic debris pose a direct harm to wildlife through entanglements and suffocation and starvation, but Plastic debris can also carry metals, pollutants, and pathogens like bacteria and viruses, which might be able to get transferred to us and other life if consumed. This is a big deal when it comes to microplastics due to their sheer volume. Over the past couple years, it's become clear that microplastics are everywhere, and I mean everywhere, in the ocean, in our drinking water, in our salt, in our shellfish, in the air we breathe, which means that they're also in us. So besides the general ick factor, what other risks does consuming or inhaling these particles pose? For instance, marine microplastics are said to contain a reservoir of pathogens, even worse than land-based microplastics. So could these diseases spread from marine plastics to the animals that consume them? A lot of researchers think that answer is yes, but this hasn't actually been tested yet. Uh, one big market of concern is in regards to shellfish aquaculture, like oysters and mussels, where microplastics have been found in large amounts. In China, for example, scientists found up to 57 microplastic particles in a single yeso clam, widely consumed in the area. Microplastics have also been found in oysters, clams, and mussels across the globe. And the big risk is the potential for certain disease-causing bacteria, like Vibrio, to transfer from consumed microplastics to oysters and then later to humans. Vibrio have been found in high levels on marine microplastics, meaning the uptake of microplastics by bivalves could increase the risk that they carry this dangerous bacteria and therefore pose a threat to humans down the line. So while there are still a lot of unknowns, a recent study by the University of Exeter and the Center for Environment, Fisheries, and Aquaculture Science tried to explore this disease transfer risk by mapping known microplastic hotspots with aquaculture sites. Results of the study are available in the show notes, but the main takeaways from the authors are that, and I quote, it's likely that any negative impacts will get worse if we continue to dump plastic into the oceans at the current rate. We urgently need to move to more sustainable and circular economy approaches to our use of plastic materials to drastically reduce the input of plastics into the environment. So at Surfrider, we could not agree more for the future of our health, the health of marine life, and aquaculture industries. Skip the plastic whenever possible and opt for reusables. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Katie. And that's going to be it for us today. That's going to wrap up today's Plyben Policy Podcast. It was a long one coming in at 26 minutes. I apologize for the length, but I've been promising that Jordan Cove update for some time, and I want to get that out to everybody. I hope you guys are staying safe and staying well and staying COVID-free and enjoying a little bit of time outside. Hug the one you are with and near, um, unless that person is not one in your circle. Uh, You guys take care, and I hope to see you soon. Bye.